We're back again, episode four. Hi, Mary. Hi, Laura. That's pretty amazing. I have Rory, our black lab, is sitting right here next to me today. And she's going to come up and say hello. So if we were on video, you'd see her on my lap, all 80 pounds of her. <laughs> so, oh, well, so what's your emotional temperature today, Laura? You know, my emotional temperature is, I'm normal. That's a good thing. I've had a... I've had a good day. I had a, a God wink today. So that put a big smile on my face and made my heart happy for the day. I remember one time Senator Elizabeth Dole said to me one time that, um, I don't know what it was that happened. And I said to her, well, I don't know, wasn't that really nice, Senator Dole? And she said, you know, Mary, that's what I call a God wink. <laughs> they happen. I think you have to be open to them. Yeah, you have your dog in the background. Yeah, probably some sketchy bag or dog walked by the door and she sensed it. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, God winks are, you have to be open to them, I think. And for me, it was Tom did photography. And once he was paralyzed, traked, invented, um, he learned to edit photo editing with his eyes, with his communication device. And I actually commissioned a piece of art recently and told the artist to make, I gave her three pictures and was like, do whichever picture you want and interpret it how you want. And she delivered it to me today. And it was not at all what I was thinking but it was everything I needed, if that makes sense. So it was a portion of one of Tom's photo uh, photographs, which was from our trip to Bora Bora, which was a bucket list trip we did after he was diagnosed with ALS. But it was only the clouds. It wasn't the beautiful water or the mountain from the island. It was just the clouds that he captured. And she said that she painted it three different times. And she tried putting the mountain in it, tried putting the water in it. And for her, it never felt right. And what felt right were the clouds. And she just didn't know if that was going to meet my expectation. And when she delivered it, I thought to myself in one moment, I was like, that's not what I thought I wanted. And then in the same moment, it was, that's exactly what I needed to see. Because it turns out that one of the things Tom had the opportunity to do before he passed was he was gifted a songwriting session with a local artist here in Austin, Texas by the name of Darden Smith. And so Darden and Tom wrote a song and there's actually um, in the lyrics, the lyrics say, uh, part of the lyrics say, so remember what it feels like to fly? The two of us flew up in the sky and that is where I'll always see that is where our love will always be. And so seeing clouds, 
that always reminds me now of that's where our Tom is. That's where our love is. And so she didn't know that. The artist had no idea that that was the words from the song. And so there's a reason why the painting never felt right to her because she was trying to do what she thought I expected. And I think it was the God wink of she was meant to paint the clouds and I was meant to see them. So it made me happy. It made me think of Tom and it gave me just happy thoughts of Tom that he was, he's here with me. Well, that's so different than maybe you would have felt, um, I don't know, six months ago. I think so. I think you have to be, you have to be willing to, to see it, hear it, or feel it. And I was in a place this morning that I was willing to, and I was ready to, to see it. And I'm super happy with it. It, it couldn't be more beautiful. Well, I love it from what I've seen of it, but really what I do know about paintings is you can never really see how beautiful a painting is until you're standing right in front of the painting. Wow. I, it's true. It is. And the more I look at it and I've been staring at it all morning, I think the more I fall in love with it and the more meaningful, and that's what it is. It's, it's meaningful to me. And that's what matters. It's hanging in my home and it means something to me. So that's why my temperature today is actually pretty normal because this was a good thing and has really set me up for the rest of the day. So how was your temperature? Well, maybe the whole week even. Who knows? And yeah, who knows how long I'm going to ride this happy. I don't know. That's good. Because you have the painting right there. So you can just- I can look at it. Yeah, and that's true. I mean, who knows what this one painting is going to do for me? Maybe it'll be instead of falling deep into one of my, you know, holes of depression, I can, you know, look at this and know that, that this is Tom smiling down on me. Mm, I love that. Well, so my temperature is, um, so right now it's normal. I think I said this on the last podcast too, which I don't usually come into a podcast feeling hot or cold. I think, um, I think one day I canceled us because I didn't want to talk about ALS that day. Yeah. I just had had enough. So it was probably hot that day. Um, and it was, I had a rough, rough weekend, emotionally a rough weekend. Things weren't working out with some of the projects I'm working on. And, you know, we're still talking about FTD, which will always be a part of the podcast because it's a, it's a big part of ALS for us right now, though there are many more physical manifestations as well. We, I see a lot more progression happening now. Um, so we'll, we'll be talking about that too, as time goes on, because that's what we do here, right? ALS care yeah. beyond. It was, it was kind of hot over the weekend. I, I really don't really, other than you, and I don't talk about a lot of these things on the podcast, but I don't have any friends who understand ALS. And maybe some of our listeners will identify with that. If you don't have friends who understand ALS, like really have lived it, are living it or have lived it, or you have somebody who's professional who can understand a variety of things across the board like that, um, people try to fix the problems and they're not, they're just not fixable. They're just things that you have to talk about in a safe place without judgment. And I saw that I, I probably, I burned some people out this weekend in my family being emotional 
and there's good emotion. I mean, I think you must have these emotions or it's grieving, you know, just because somebody hasn't died yet doesn't mean you don't have grief over their impending, the impending doom that they're dying, the impending doom of every day, a little bit of your own life gets carved away. And are you going to be able to reclaim that? And what do you look like at the end of all this? And I feel that pretty, pretty strongly right now. So I did something I've never done before. I reached out to a therapist. So I'm going to put my first therapy appointment tomorrow at three o'clock. And I set that all up in our preamble before we even got onto our podcast today. And I'm, I'm happy for myself that I did it. This is a good thing. And I, I do think that I have a lot of good boundaries and good habits in my life. I've been a caregiver for a long time. But I'm also aware that there are times when you need help that you can't, you don't even know how help can help you. And that's how I feel right now. I know I need help. I can't tell you how I need the help. I can't see what kind of like direction I can change in my life or what kind of things I can apply to my life that would help me. But I think that's why you need therapy. When to help you figure it out somebody to listen to me without judging me and you know like you can say I'm feeling that, that they need to to fix you or has a you know has a connection to you um that's what you need you're you're really starting to walk into uncharted waters mm -hmm. um you know with with caregiving your caregiving hasn't taking you to where you are now because because most of us with a you know the caregiving side of als we all know in the back of our heads there's no getting better there's no you can't care give enough to make them better you can't care give enough just to make the hurt go away and so that is hard um and and that's something i think that's unique to terminal diseases is it's not a, it's not a, you know, a sudden impact for someone that you care give to a point of, you know, where they can, you know, be, get better or at least learn a new way of living with, with ALS, it's just constantly, mm -hmm. it's constantly moving towards an endpoint that you know of. And, and I know you are where I was really at the point of Tom traking inventing mm -hmm. where it just got really hard. And then at that point where he started to show some signs of FTD and that was, gosh, that was so hard. Um, trying to make your head know that it's the disease, but your heart is married to this person and it's just not that person. So I'm proud. I'm super proud of you. I I'm super proud. I know that this will help you and it'll, it'll, it, it's going to fill what you need it to fill mm -hmm. as you move a little deeper into this. Well, and I did find somebody who does telehealth. And I think that that's an important, um, it's an important piece to introduce into this conversation. An obstacle for me is if I have to go there. Well, you can't ALS, you know, when you get to a point in ALS, you just can't leave the house. It's, it's scary. It's, it's hard and it can be dangerous, especially if, you know, they're, 
either they're in their wheelchair, you can run up against obstacles, handicap accessibility obstacles, or if they're walking, there's issues. It's just, it's hard to get out with ALS. And sometimes I think that's what people forget. They see some people getting out with ALS and think that's the norm and not realize that further you go into the disease, it makes it harder. Right. For people who follow me on social media, you would see that I used to get out a lot. I post my videos and I'm riding my bike or photos. I had a, on my Facebook page, I have a, an album of photos I took when I was running down, down on the beach roads. Sometimes I take my, would take my bike out there. What a lot has changed since I had the hand surgery in June. I haven't been able to get out that way. Um, I do go to hand therapy, but it's a short-lived thing. You're going to go to the hand therapy for a few weeks and then it's going to be over. Um, and I go during the time when Tom's on his respiratory therapy and in his bed. And right now he doesn't get out. I mean, he really can't get out of the bed by himself. So there is that plus. It's, we have this established routine that he's in there from 3 to 5.30. Um, but for me to spend the time driving to therapy and then if that therapist doesn't have telehealth, if I can't leave the house at all, then what good does it do? And then I have to start over with somebody else, which is initially what happened. I knew I... I wanted therapy about a month or so ago, and I reached out to somebody who had this great resume online. I think I found it through referrals with Psychology Today, and it looked great. You know, my son has been through PTSD, and you know he's forty years old, but doesn't mean that I haven't bared the brunt of it a lot of times, and that's a kind of a big deal for us around here, or at least it was. And she had a practice of, you know, with military connections and PTSD. And it just seemed like from reading her stuff, it was really good. Well, she didn't have an opening for six weeks and she only works on Tuesdays and Thursdays. She's been doing it for 30 years. And I thought, well, maybe she's not the right person for me. She doesn't do telehealth. Um, she has very limited hours. And then it would take me about 20 minutes to get there. And then you're with somebody for 45 minutes or maybe an hour, whatever it is. And then I have to drive home. That's that's a tough one for me, especially if I can't keep it up with ALS. So right now I would say my recommendation for somebody who thinks they could use some therapy um, in our situation with a, as an ALS caregiver is to find someone who does telehealth. You can usually find some time during the day to do that every few weeks even. Well, I'm going to start once. You said a couple of your recommendation for me is to go for a couple of weeks in a row, a few weeks in a row, and then spread them out after that. And I have a long history with caregiving. So there's a lot to be said in my sessions with somebody there. You have to fill in the backstory where they won't even know what they're dealing with. Yeah. Um, for those that are like for the veterans that are in home-based primary care, you know, we actually, Tom had therapy. I think it was like once every, I don't know, like every two to three weeks, he had a therapist with his home-based primary care program come into the house and she was able to do couples therapy because there was a lot of times Tom would refuse to talk to her and she was there. So she would just sit and he would have to listen. Um, and we would do therapy, couples therapy, um, you know, with him listening. And there were times where he was adamant that he didn't even want to take part in that. And so she would go into our living room. So I was able to do therapy um, through the use of the VA's home-based primary care program. So that's an option too, if you're a 
if a veteran caregiver, ask your home-based primary care therapist to come in and they have that ability to do that for you. So it's an option. That That is a good option. And I will say I am going to pay out of pocket initially. I think with my insurance, which is Champ VA through the VA, um, there's a, you can submit claims. I don't know if I will though. It depends on how much work I'm willing to put into submitting a claim. I'm really opposed to having extra work right now. <laughs> if I if I don't have to do something extra, I'm not doing something extra. I'm oh, really, I agree. I'm, really I, I'm on look. this side of it, and I don't submit. I have I have Champ VA as well, and I'm now at once every four weeks with my therapist. And you know, for me, it's worth it. I'm I can do it, and so doing I think the administrative part of having to submit a claim. No, I'm, I'm so done with the administrative part of all of this of like dealing with the grief that no, but I, I do, I still, I went every week after Tom died um, for probably a couple of months and then spread it out every two weeks. I was adamant that I needed to work through the grief mm -hmm. and the trauma of caregiving. I think sometimes we underestimate people underestimate what you do as a caregiver, especially to high acuity veterans mm -hmm. and those with, you know, things like FTD, it, it really takes a toll on you as a person. It does. It takes, um, you know, it carves you up a little bit. It does. Yeah. Kind of carves you up and well, then you don't really know who you are. You're not whole for a while, which is how I feel now. I don't feel whole, but I need to feel whole. I need to feel whole, even broken whole. Like even in the broken broken pieces that I feel of myself, within those broken parts, I want to feel that that broken part is is whole. Which probably doesn't even make any sense to anybody, but I understand it. I no, understand. I I absolutely do. I'm thinking to myself as you're saying that, it's like I don't know if I'll ever be whole. I'm just this new broken version of myself. Well, then, if that's the case, then I have to learn how to accept that. I, I hope that it's not the case for you, but it is for me. And that's, I think that's where I struggle is, is, um, I think ALS and ALS caregiving did chew me up and spit me out. And, and maybe someday I will, I'm only 13 months out of losing my husband and, you know, we were together 32 years. So maybe I need to lower my expectation on being whole. Mm -hmm. uh, so soon, but that's honestly where I feel. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I do get like, there are parts of me that feels a little more whole, but not, I'm not fully. But different or different. It is, it is very different. You'll be different. And there's no, yeah, there's no going back. I don't think there is. a. You can't go back to the person that you were before this. You see too much. You feel too much. You go through too much. You'll know, you're never going to go back to the person that you were. And that's a grieving in and of itself. I miss that old Laura. She was happy. She laughed at everything. She loved to people. This version of Laura, not a big fan of peopling. Right. And she's too much like me. We're too And much. she's too much when she does people. Yeah, we're still too much. <laughs> that's why we both need therapy. We're too much. But yeah, therapy is a good thing. I'm even too much for myself many days. So, and I know that. So I'm I'm ready to make 
some small changes. I don't have high expectations that big changes can come right away or maybe even ever. I'm looking for a little bit of peace in the moments that I have now. If I can get that out of it, that would make me happy. That would make yeah. me satisfied. Nothing really makes me happy. So one time you said on your, one of your, your social media posts that you you miss what happy is. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, I don't know. Happy so fleeting. I would just take um, satisfied. <laughs> happy is scary for me when I'm happy because I feel as though it's going to disintegrate. The other shoe is going to drop and they won't be happy. But I try not to get yeah. happy. Yeah. And I think that's what this, you know, going through a journey like this for, and it, and again, we, you know, it doesn't have to be ALS. It's just our lane, but any like major life event that really just shakes you to your core and, and makes you reevaluate how things happen. You just kind of have to redefine. I agree, you know, being happy is something I miss, but you know, you have to also throw in, I was blissfully happy. I didn't understand the bad things that happen in life. And now I do. And so I just don't know. I, I, I just, let's just say I look forward to a time when I can say I'm happy again. I just don't know if that will ever truly happen. Well, I'll be here cheering you on though. No, I appreciate it. I know it makes it sound like great. There's no coming back. I think there is. I think we're just in the moment we're meeting ourselves where we are, like we talked about the last podcast, this is just where we are. This is a journey. And, you know, maybe that valley is, you know, a lot longer than we want it to be. But we we keep walking, we keep our head down and we keep going. We do. And I've, I've had some good moments. Um, I'm getting my paper making is coming along and that's really good for me. Yeah, I'm um, waiting for that Etsy shop to open. Yeah, it's going to soon. I have about 10 photos now on paper. I ran another one through this morning of a butterfly. And then, and that came out really nice. It's in the other room, but um, they've, they've come out really good. They're going to be $20. Somebody suggested I charge 25, but really that's $20. I, I can't keep them all, but I love them. And I, I really hope that other people love them, especially when you know the story of where it comes from where in my heart it comes from and what it does for me. And then to see them. And I get such joy when they come out of the printer because you don't know what paper, the paper is so interesting. I know people can't see it, but like this piece, this one piece of paper, can you see like the lines in it? I can. Yeah. So when, when I put a photo through there, you know, I'll choose one that I think would go really, Oh, this one has, um, this one has leaves impressed in it. See mm -hmm. So when I put it through the printer and with the, the way the paper just dried, you just don't know how it's going to turn out. And I love that. I love an unopened package, right? So when I put it through and it starts coming out, I'm, I either get really excited or I'm crushed. I have no, I have no like um, neutral feeling about it. It's, it's either, oh my God, this is so good. Or, oh, this is terrible. I'm just throwing it out. <laughs> Whatever. Look, it's got this stupid thing on it. I'm just going to get rid of it. Nobody, much, Mary. Nobody would ever want to buy that. But when they come out really good, I think, yeah, I could offer that one for sale. I love it. I think that's a great one. So I'm looking forward to that. That's just a little 
piece for me. I can't make paper every day. I don't have time for it. It takes time. So I have to like, set time aside for it, which is good. It takes some planning, takes me out of myself. So it's, it's good therapy for me to do that. And um, it's enriching for me. It's problem solving. I have to problem solve. So let's talk about problem solving. Problem I was solving. just going to say, you know, we could, we could leap into something about problem solving. Yeah, we can. We talk about advocacy, which for me, right in the beginning, when Tom was diagnosed with ALS, it was problem solving for me. Um, it was one thing, it was one claim that I didn't have to handle because Paralyzed Veterans of America handled the claim. And I, I loved that because I handled his other disability claim for all the years and would continue to do until just a few years ago when uh, the life of the policy ran out. It was nice to be able to hand that over, but it wasn't the end of it. When he was diagnosed with ALS in 2010, um, ALS was presumptive, meaning we didn't have to know when or where somebody would have gotten it in the military, uh, became a presumptive in 2008. So it was pretty new in the VA system when Tom was diagnosed and it was rated at 30%. So what does that mean? presumptive in 2008. So what happened to the ALS veterans prior to 2008? They were fighting for it to be recognized as a service-connected disease. So nothing, they got nothing. Veterans, veterans literally died advocating for ALS to be a military um, disease, like a military-recognized disease, service-connected wow. disease. So there were years where veterans were fighting for that. They were on Congress, they were at hearings, they were pushing legislation, and then hundreds of them along the way died trying to get this service connected. So in 2008, well, let me back it up. So in 2006, they were, they were um, Duke and a couple of other institutions, I believe, were uh, the National Institute of was it health? The NIH, yeah, right? NIH, yeah. NIH did it. Commissioned them to do a white paper analysis going as far back as they could with veterans to see if there was um, a connection due to how many were, how many veterans were being diagnosed with ALS over the decades. And then they, that's where they came up with the number that a veteran is more than 50% more likely to get ALS than a non-veteran. But there was the, you know, it wasn't like a typical research study where, you know, they have participants and placebos and all that. It was what they call white paper studies. So they went back and they they did their research on cases that were talked about and published. And um, it was pretty, pretty extensive and presented to Congress and the VA. And then in 2008, it became um, a presumptive service-connected disease for veterans, 30% rating. Which so is really not that long ago, 2008, it's not that far. No. And so, so 30% rating is not very much. It means we acknowledge that you have the disease essentially. So veterans who have it had a ALS that was, um, a, you know, a very fast paced progressive variant would have to go back to the VA often to get their ratings increase. It was, it was ridiculous, really. And they would go, some of them would go, you know, three, four or five times in a year or over several months, depending on how fast paced the disease was for them. When Tom was diagnosed in 2010, he um, 
was 30%. And I used that money to pay somebody to mow the lawn and take care of the lawn and stuff like that, because that was one thing that was really a problem for him was mowing the lawn. And I was working full time. So only so many hours in a day. That's what I used the money for. But there was a push in um, to change the 30% to 100%. That was where my first advocacy with ALS started. Um, it was it was sitting as an, an RAN, you know, the RANs in the VA, like the RANs are the proposals. They're like in the federal register. It was announced in the federal register that there was this proposal and it just sat there for two years, this proposal to push it to a hundred percent. And it really made me, it really made me so angry that it was taking so long because veterans were dying and their, and their wives, their spouses were not getting um, their DIC, their widow's pension. And they weren't getting all the things that they needed to take care of themselves. I was an AP government teacher and I was sitting in an, I was sitting in the training for AP government and I received a call from Senator Burr's office. So, and you know, I saw DC on my phone and I was like, whoa, who's calling me from DC? I'm in an AP Gov training. This is so cool. So I ran out, I took the phone call and the woman says to me, well, I'm just calling to let you know that we received, Senator Burr received your letter and they're, you know, about pushing this hundred percent rule that it happens soon. We understand you know, the need for that. And, and we think it's going to pass. And I said, Oh, good. I'm so glad. I said, you know, this is so crazy that it's taking so long. I wrote to every single person who serves on the, the veterans committee in Washington, DC. Like I wrote to all the congressmen who were on the, so I wrote it on the house side and I wrote it on the Senate side and went through the whole list. And I sent them an actual letter. I didn't even do email. I sent them an actual letter. And she said, you know, Mary, we know because we know everybody got your letter <laughs> in Capitol Hill. I said, oh my God, that's so great. I was so excited. I almost cried. Yeah. I was like, they got my letter. We got heard. And that is, that's advocacy right there. That was a very, that was what you call it, your kitchen table advocacy. Because Thomas said to me, why don't you send him an email? And I said, I'm going to send them an email. I'm going to send them a letter and make them open that sucker and read it. And read how difficult this is. We have a son that's deployed right now. You might die when he's deployed. How is that? We can't wait. And what am I going to tell him? That I did nothing about this? That I didn't try to make a difference to veterans who are suffering like this? That he he could, he himself could get ALS someday because he served. And he's just going to quietly go home and die. And nobody's even going to know about it. Nobody's even going to care in the VA. This is ridiculous. We, need, we at least need to get the benefits they deserve. That's pretty much what my letter said. I wish I had kept it, but who knew how advocacy could grow over the years? And I think that's really the story of advocacy for us today, is that for you and I, that you just don't know where it's going to go. Because then that led to the next thing that I did, and then the next thing that I did. And so I started at my, my kitchen table, and I ended up in a subcommittee hearing in the, on Capitol Hill. That's amazing. And how did that even happen? It's just, they, the Dole Foundation said, would you like to do it? And I said, well, yeah, I'm going to be on vacation, which was really an important vacation for me. It was any teachers listening would understand is the end of the school year. And every year at the end of the school year, I plan a little vacation. I plan a little something for me to look forward to. So it's very, it's really tough to get through the end of the year. You've kind of had it with everything. 
And I said, sure, I'll go. And we went and it was truly an amazing experience. It was really powerful. I would say that was probably the, the height of advocacy for me was when I did that. And what year was that? That was in 2017. So seven years after Tom was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. And I will tell you, I watched that hearing. And that was one of the first times that I had heard those words put together, ALS and veteran together. And that was a year after Tom, my Tom was diagnosed. He was diagnosed in 2016. Was. And so when, when Tom was diagnosed, even, even as early as 2016, you didn't hear the words ALS and veteran in the same sentence because we were still coming off the, the wars and the focus was not on this very rare terminal disease, which is very different today. I think the advocacy that's been done by so many people from the kitchen table writing to, you know, the committees, subcommittees on nonprofits has really moved. I always say it moves the ball down, down the field. We're not at the, we're not in the end zone yet, but we're moving it down the field. Yeah. We've come a long way. I mean, when I think about sitting at the kitchen table, we, we, um, we came, we've come a long way since that day. I mean, once we went to hundred percent, when a veteran is diagnosed with ALS, if they meet the requirements of the military service with 30 consecutive days of active duty, um, they're rated at hundred percent and then they're, they're immediately approved for the specially adaptive housing grant to get the paperwork going. I mean, I say approved, there's a bit of very long process and we could, we could do a whole podcast on that in the future, but it's a, it's a very lengthy process, but they're initially given that. And we would, Tom was denied that initially, and he was initially denied the automobile grant to get a specially adaptive vehicle. We had a wheelchair, but no ramp to our house. Think about that. They delivered him a wheelchair and we didn't have a ramp in our house. So it had to go in the garage and we didn't have a van. So what good was it? You're just hanging, you're going to hang your shit on it in the, in the garage. You can't do anything with it. It's crazy. You can get it into the house. Yeah. Not only that, but when the guy brought the van, right? So somebody had to drop it off. They brought, they came, brought it in a van and they, they're trying to, they're trying to explain to him how to use it. And I'm working and teaching. And he said that he had no idea what he was doing. So when, when he sat in the chair, he, he hit the joystick accidentally because the guy left it on the wheelchair on and he took off onto into the, the grass and hit a tree. Oh, <laughs> it was a small tree, but he was, he was like, whoa, I don't even know if I want a wheelchair now. <laughs> I didn't even drive this thing. And so, you know, that was, that was a crazy moment, but they were good at the VA was good at getting him in the wheelchair, but he wasn't, hadn't been approved for a wheelchair accessible van yet. So those kinds of things have really ironed out and, and they've, they've really changed over the years with not just my advocacy, of course, but many people's advocacy over time, they started to recognize it and more and more veterans 
were diagnosed within and at any given time. I think the number we, that is generally used with veterans is about 4,500 veterans are living with the disease right now. And it's a pretty steady number, just like broadly, if 20,000 people live with ALS, there's always about 20,000 people living with ALS. So people with ALS die and people are being diagnosed and it's the steady number. I've heard all kinds of numbers, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 people living with ALS. I don't, I don't even know what the right number is anymore. It's about 4,500 veterans at any given time that are living with, with the disease. Yeah, that's, and I think that's the, that's what's hard is that the numbers are small and they stay consistent because, because the disease is so quick in the progression. And, and so it makes it hard to really see any type of momentum going for advocacy. But just from what we've seen, I've seen a huge difference from what it was like in 2016 when Tom was diagnosed to what that, what it looks like today. I mean, gosh, we're talking today, veterans, you know, while there is a cap to getting care in the home, like nursing care for those more high acuity veterans, it's there. In 2016, it wasn't. You didn't see it very often. You didn't see other services the VA offered being routinely used for this population of veterans. Like, for example, the um, Veterans Directed Care VDC program or skilled care. I think our, our advocacy started pretty quickly. Um, we had not we had not been affiliated with the military veteran anything. We had never gone to the VA. Tom had been out of the service for well almost 20 years by the time he was uh diagnosed with ALS so it was it was our first um introduction into the VA and we did it Tom was approved in under five days and two of those days were weekends Saturday and Sunday that's how fast Tom's 100% approval happened and again it was through the PVA that's that's quick but his, um, the first time we had really any issues was probably, I don't know, seven, eight months into it, his Tom, Tom started having respiratory issues fairly early in the disease and we needed a ventilator and our pulmonologist, VA pulmonologist ordered the ventilator in like November of 2016 and, um, said it would be, we would probably have it, you know, in two to three weeks. So I didn't want to push the VA at that time. I just was like, how bad can it be? You know, it's 2016. Jesus, I'm sure the VA is, you know, is on top of things that my expectation was of the VA was what I would have expected from non-VA mm -hmm. healthcare. And December goes by and we don't have a ventilator. January goes by and there's no ventilator. And the, the reasons I'm getting is either the doctor forgot to put the script in, or there are no ventilators. There's no um, vendor to handle the vent, the home vent. So it was probably in probably February. By February, I just got tired of it. And that's when I really went full force in advocacy. And it was with the VA. And 
it it took us it took us a hot minute but we did get the ventilator we did get a company to service it but i think that experience of how to understand the va i mean we talk in silos that the va is quite siloed which means every group works independently from the other mm-hmm. um makes it difficult it makes it difficult for internal employees to operate much less those of us that need the services and that's where honestly my first advocacy effort was getting tom his ventilator and then it just seemed every time something changed in his health it was another not reason but need to mm-hmm. advocate and i think that's where you know for me and for you we 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 never really took those no's as no's from the VA. I, I didn't. I know for sure I didn't. Um, I have a background in working for state government. And, and you know, I absolutely early on recognized that the first no is typically someone that probably doesn't even know the answer. And no is the easier answer to give than let me find out. Mm-hmm. And so I just kept moving up trying to find, you know, if you're going to give me a no answer, get at least, you know, give me a, a reason behind it. Mm-hmm. And so that's my advocacy really started from that, just trying to get services and equipment for my husband. And when he passed, mm-hmm. I can tell you, I hear more positive stories of people getting services and equipment from their VAs today than I did back in 2016. So I think the VA is doing, advocacy is working, but it does take people to stand up and and ask that question. So why is this a no? Why is why aren't we getting the service that the hundred percent service connected veteran earned? Mm-hmm. Well, and the ALS care in the VA doesn't look like the kind of care that the VA for generations had serviced had needed to give, right? So I agree. You know, a paralysis from disease is not the same as an amputation or even a paralysis. An SCI, yeah. Yeah. So it did, it did change the landscape of the way they're doing business and they're still evolving into, into understanding ALS and how to have the best practices with, with ALS. Well, so I think what I heard you say with your advocacy then is, your advocacy started on a very personal level. You needed to get your husband equipment and you were going to fight for it. And you did. You knew you you knew that you could fight for it because you do have a background in policy and as, as a career for yourself. Um, and not everybody has that background. So what is one of the things you could suggest to somebody who's trying to get something for their, whether it's using Medicare dollars or or the VA, they're both big bureaucracies in our government. How could somebody go about getting what they need? They know that the, they need for the disease for their loved one. I think right now, I would say now, especially now knowing how, you know, how time is, is so precious when you're caring for someone with ALS or a terminal disease, I think now I would say work smart and not hard. And so connecting with others in your organization or in your community. So for me, I quickly 
And that was a, that's a concept I've always worked by. Work smart, not hard. Someone else has already probably done something similar. So don't try to recreate the will. Just kind of, you know, perfect what they've done or, or use that as a jumping off point. So I would, I would really recommend people to connect either through some of the social media platforms. That's one of the best ways to do it. Facebook, you and I have a, a Facebook group. It's actually a group that you started mm -hmm. um, to connect veterans and caregivers. And that group is really strictly just, it's, it's not a, a feel good, let's talk about our emotions. It's really a, a, honestly, I like it. It's a down and dirty, this is what I need. How do I get it? And you get a lot of good input from other people, either they've tried and they have failed or people that have been successful. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of great different um, ways to look at how to handle a situation. And it may be that depending on where you're, you're located in the U.S., mm -hmm. you know, really depends on how you go forward. So I would say either, you know, try to connect in groups on Facebook, try to connect with um, advocates on Twitter, Instagram. There's, there's several that are on TikTok, just connecting with them and asking them, how did they get, especially if you see someone with say a piece of equipment that you are wanting, how did you get that equipment? Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I think this community of caregivers and veterans we are not holding anything close to the best. We let everybody know, this is how we did it. This is how you can do it. Which also kind of then you can say, it's something you and I put together because it was a conversation that we had early on about it shouldn't be this hard for people to access care and services through the VA. We need a dummies guide. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it. And then I... Tom was traked invented in 2019 and my ability to have time to put towards it just diminished considerably. And you picked up the ball and you moved it down, you know, the field and published a book. Mm -hmm. um, and it's our dummies guide. Honestly, and on those are all listening. There's veterans with ALS and their caregivers, VA benefits and VA care. So yeah, and you can find it on Facebook. Yeah. Or not Facebook. Listen to me. Amazon. 10 bucks. We're going through a revision right now, which you're taking the lead on. And we've um so interesting because we've we've flipped our positions. I had much more time to do that kind of work than I do now. Now yeah. I just don't have so many hours. So Tom doesn't need as many hands-on hours as your Tom did. But mine is um, is needs a lot of it. There's a lot of attention that has to be paid to what's happening around me with Tom right now, and that that's time consuming. So I don't yeah. have not had time. I will. I will. I am going to add something in there about the caregiver program, the VA caregiver program, because that's really new since we have published our book. Um, I don't think that there's something out there for non veteran caregiver, non-veteran caregivers with ALS, except I would point you in the direction of the IMALS organization. And they have, and then they, the founders that Brian Walk and his wife, Sandra are brave. I don't, I'm not sure if I say her name correctly, um, have 
another organization that they call Synaptature. I don't even know if I said that right. You can go to them for some advocacy if you need help getting, you know, in a case management kind of way, I think, for things you need for Medicare and Medicaid and your own insurance company, your, your private insurance. So there's more help out there now than there was before. And I, I would say that the biggest thing, if people, if somebody's listening to this and saying, yeah, but how can I advocate? Like, I'm like, my hands are full. I really can't do anything. I don't really don't know anything. I would say if one aspect of advocacy that is so strong for us in the ALS community is to talk about the disease, that the awareness is huge because the more people who know, the better it is for all of us because then somebody who wants to help you or would like to help somebody else may have an idea of how they can help. Or maybe it's a business that they're looking to donate somewhere. You can donate to research or you can donate equipment or you can donate DoorDash cards for somebody or donate services for somebody to come in and clean the house. Or there's many different ways that we need help with ALS because it's a total body disease. It's one person can't do it alone. It's a family disease. There's, yeah, it is. It's a family and friends. If you have friends in your community who want to be part of your life, I mean, a lot of times we lose friends when that happens. People don't know how to connect or it's just too much for them. They can't handle being around somebody who has a terminal disease. And, you know, ALS changes people's bodies. It changes how they sound and how they look. And that can be hard for people. You know, having lived with an eye injury, as I did all of my life, I can't tell you how many people would look at me because it's noticeable when you know that something's wrong. Or sometimes, you know, as a lot of times kids noticed it, they turn away from me. It's really interesting that it even still happens. They don't know how to look at me. They don't, my pupil is permanently dilated. It doesn't look like my other eye drifts off to the left. And so I'm aware of the, how the physical appearance can change somebody and how that can affect others in this lane of ALS. And it's hard because you want to say, look, they're just still the same person, you know, like don't, don't look at the outside of somebody. Remember, it's the inside of someone. So your so your awareness is huge. If you're thinking, gosh, Laura and Mary, they've done so much. We've done so much because we could we could do a lot. And we've always been empowered by that. Because we because we can, we did. And everything that we did, we we hoped would help other people now or people who come after us. Right. And our advocacy, there's so many lanes to advocacy. You know, there's the awareness side of advocacy. You can advocate for medication. And we took the lane of veterans and getting services and, and equipment. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, when you testified, you didn't, yours was the first time I'd really heard those two words, ALS and veteran together. And for me through the years, anytime I hear it more mainstreamed where it's either on, you know, I've heard it a couple of times on the news or, you know, either even on like media campaigns on social media, it always makes my heart burst mm -hmm. with happiness. As much as I hate the fact that those two words are together, it is exciting because those two words means there's more awareness. And that, that to me is advocacy. And so you can approach advocacy any way you want. And you're right. It can be as something as simple as emailing someone, emailing your, you know, your elected official. You can find those 
easily on with a quick Google search on who represents me. Mm-hmm. That's that's an easy way to advocate. Reaching out to a nonprofit like the IMALS organization, they have many committees that welcome volunteers. That's a way to advocate. I think I took it on as one, it was necessary to get Tom the information, you know, the supplies and the equipment and services he needed. And I did recognize because I had been doing, you know, policy regulatory work for 20 years um, when I had to to leave that profession when Tom was trained invented. I did recognize that I had a skill set that could be beneficial in, in a regulated uh, community like, like the VA. Um, and I knew that not everybody had a Laura or a Mary to speak for them. And so whenever I would advocate for Tom, I would always say my veteran and the veterans that will come after him, Mm -hmm. you know, as the caregiver and the other caregivers, because I never looked at it as this was a win for me. This is a win for we and the community as a whole. And that's, I think, how I approached it and how I still approached it. I advocate, I still advocate for this community and for caregivers, even after Tom passed. And and I know that I didn't have to do that. I know that I could have just, you know, collected myself and learned to live this new life. But I find um, I find a lot of healing in advocacy work now. Um, it's good for my soul. It's helping me heal through the grief by knowing that I'm continuing to honor my husband in advocating for things. Um, and I can look back and say, some good came out of such a horrible disease and a, you know, a horrible, my reality, you know, losing my husband, I can still find good gratitude. We've talked about that before. Mm-hmm. I can feel, see some gratitude. I can find gratitude knowing that the work we're doing is going to continue to help veterans and it's pushing. It's, it's just helping this next group of caregivers and veterans that will be diagnosed because it's not if it's when Mm -hmm. they'll be more diagnosed that's the sad part of this disease that they will they will have services and equipment that we didn't easily obtain that they won't have to work hard and spend precious time and even precious personal resources and when you advocate to the level that we have and other people have and like you did recently in Washington, D.C. with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, pushing an important piece of legislation through called the 65% rule to that. Well, I'll give you a, a minute, um, you know, to explain what the 65% rule and what you're looking to get for it. But when you when you do that, you also get to tell your stories. And I think and that's even what we're doing with the podcast. You know, by podcasting about this, we're opening ourselves up. We're allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. We feel comfortable being vulnerable in this lane. And we know not everybody in the world listens to this podcast, but people who are interested in this listen to it. And this helps us create awareness with the caregivers that we see you. We don't live and breathe what you do every day, but in general, we see you, we hear you, we feel you. And we know we're not so alone because we have each other and there's other people that we have in our lives because we are out there. But if you're sitting in your house listening to this right now and think, I feel so alone, know that we see you. Write us a note. I put our email in every single one 
of our show notes and I will always continue to do that. We don't have anything else. We don't have a website. We don't have social media right now. We're working on all that, but there's our email. And you could you could just write and say, thank you for your podcast or, you know, I see you too, Mary and Laura. I see what you're doing. So awareness and storytelling is so huge. And you, you use that in your last um, big advocacy up in Washington, D.C. I did. And before I talk about that, uh, connect with us and we can point you to where, you know, the Facebook group that we are admins for that, that you can connect with us there as well um, and connect with other caregivers and veterans um, with ALS. Um, but yeah, the 65% rule, there's, there's actually, it's called the Elizabeth Dole Home Health Care Act. And it's um, HR 542, if anybody wants to look it up, or Senate Bill 141. And what it does is there's multiple components to the bill. Um, but the one component that is, is absolutely personal and critical for our ALS veterans, high acuity veterans, is um, removal of the 65% rule. And so the 65% rule or cap means that the VA will provide care in the community services up to 65% of the cost of putting that veteran in what is called a CLC, a community living center or a nursing home. Well, anybody that's dealing with an ALS, if you're a caregiver to an ALS veteran that's on a ventilator, whether it's you know 24-7, non-invasive or invasive when they trach and vent, um, these types of facilities would never care for a, a veteran on a ventilator. And so the VA can, can deny additional services. You would hope that they wouldn't, but the 65% cap provides them the ability to deny services to this population of veterans. And what the Elizabeth Dole Home Healthcare Act does is it removes the cap. It takes it from 65 to 100%. So veterans like me, or like my husband and caregivers like myself would not have had to work so hard to get skilled nursing care in the home. Once Tom was traked and vented, I did a, about a year and a half of his care with limited help. We did have veterans directed program, but you know, shifts weren't always filled. We had caregivers that would, you know, not always come in on time or they wouldn't show up and we'd not get any phone calls or they would just come in and quit on us. So it's not, um, you know, consistent care that you can count on. And so living that life, traked and vented, it was exhausting. I connected with a lot of other caregivers that are, you know, that take care of their veteran that's, you know, on a ventilator and trach. There's a lot of work to it. It can be done and they can live wonderful, happy, vibrant lives on a ventilator, but you need help and removing the 65% cap does that. And so I was in DC a couple of weeks ago to kind of tell my story, to kind of help spread that awareness that, that it is true that you can live a, a, a life ventilated, which I think is something some people, if you're not familiar with this, you know, your first thought is, oh my gosh, well, no, you know, you can get in your wheelchair and you can, you know, we have veterans that are attending their daughter's wedding and having the first dance, walking them down the aisle or going and seeing the Barbie movie with their daughter who turned 16 or going on vacations, being able to, you know, meet their first grandchild. So um, this is personal, it's important. And 
the removal of this is absolutely going to push the ball down the field even further. And it gives the opportunity for those veterans that may be on the fence of what they want to do to know that they would be able to get help in the home through the use of skilled nursing care. And we're talking 24 seven nursing care. If you can get your shifts filled, you would have an, an RN or an LVN in the home to assist you. That's huge. That helps make a decision. We have veterans that will choose not to trach and vent and actually choose to pass mm -hmm. just because they don't want to burden their family. And that should never be the reason to make that choice. The make the choice should be made because either you want to live or you're ready. Mm -hmm. It should never be dependent on, will the VA provide services for me? Mm -hmm. This bill removes that. And, and I hope more veterans, you know, especially those veterans that are, you know, we're having veterans in their late twenties and thirties be diagnosed. They have babies at home. Mm -hmm. I, I hope that this helps them make that, that decision or it allows them to make the decision easier knowing that they wouldn't burden their family because the help is there and, you know. That was a big piece of your recent advocacy. So, you know, local, state, federal level of advocacy, yeah. pretty powerful. Yeah. Um, but listeners, please don't be discouraged if you think, well, I can never do anything like that. First of all, you never know where you can go with your advocacy. And second of all, it takes just, it just takes starting, you know, just awareness alone is just huge. So we've, we've, does. we've gone, we've done a lot with our advocacy, but you don't, you don't, don't feel pressured by that. You're just being in the game every single day, just advocating for the right wheelchair, advocating for the right care that you need in the home or the equipment through your insurance company is a lot of advocacy. It's a big job being a caregiver of somebody who has ALS. And then on top of that, you have to be their advocate. Now, yeah, I think if someone- We can talk about how, how advocating for ourselves is really a trip too, after all of that. <laughs> talk about that on another episode. <laughs> yeah, there's no time to advocate for yourself. Um, well, I was going to say, if someone would have told me when, to when I was fighting for Tom's ventilator in 2016, that I would fly to DC to help advocate for a national piece of legislation that's gonna help veterans across the country or that I would have a voice that could, you know, advocate at a state level, I'm located in Texas. And I do a tremendous amount of advocacy through our VISN level, uh, which is the Veteran Integrated Service Network. Um, we have two of those visions in Texas, and I do a lot in Vision 17 and Vision 16. I would have laughed at you. I would have said, there's no way. I'm No, I'm just concentrating on my husband, and that's all I'm going to do. It, it's amazing how this disease pushes you. Um, I don't know. It just makes you want to help your, your fellow. I think it follows what our veterans do, where they go into it and and they see, they don't see another, like in our case, airman, it's just their brother mm -hmm. and they'll do anything for their brother. Mm -hmm. And I think I would do anything for other caregivers going through this. It's just, it's a lived experience that, you know, you can't do alone and you just, 
you need someone to help you fight. That's why I do it. Yeah. And it stays with you. So, well, this was a long podcast, I think today, but it was really a fruitful one. And I think, Bob, would you just try to get some, uh, some guests on. So if you're listening and you'd like to be a guest, we're going to reach out to people who we're hoping will guest on the show. So you're not always listening to Laura and Mary. So we have a lot to say, I think. So it's, it's, um, we will never not have a lot to say, but it will be nice to have some guests on the show. So if you'd like to be a guest, you can, um, in the show notes is our email address, both of us, one, you can email one or the other. And um, we'll we'll set something up with you and let us know what it is that you'd like to talk about. You could tell us your story, your advocacy wins. Advocacy fails are really good too. You know, as a teacher, I would say, you know, one of the things that, you know, I taught so many students that were advanced placement students and honor students. I taught all levels of students, but those students really worried about when they didn't when they didn't do well on a test or they had one thing wrong or they didn't get the A that they wanted, they got the B that they they did. They didn't want. They thought they were working for an A, and I would say to them all the time, "But it's the things that, it's the things that we have to work for that really matter. Those are where we really learn so much." Um, and I'm reminded of that as I'm making paper. It's so interesting because I've had some epic fails making paper. It's nothing like really more sucky than a whole bunch of wet paper that isn't working out. <laughs> it's really yeah. gooey, and then it takes a lot of cleanup. But you know, what I'm learning, and it's so satisfying and. Um, and I can feel down about it, you know, just, just like 20 years ago when I was going through school and, you know, finishing one of my graduate degrees and I was really frustrated with the process of, um, one of the professors had, um, but you know, that's where you learn. So when advocacy doesn't work out, it's, it's okay. You know, pick yourself up and go figure out what to do next or incorporate what you've learned in there to be a better advocate going forward. You know, we're cheering you on here. We we want to hear about your successes and the things that haven't worked out and maybe how they've changed around or how you've changed your approach to advocacy. But I've changed my approach to advocacy um, over the years. You know, I I tend to be nicer in my messaging with people, kinder. I'm not so as cutthroat as I used to be. But, you know, I carried a lot of anger about ALS, which we talk about that too on another another podcast that that's sometimes what's driven us is our anger about it but sometimes there's so much love right that's driven us too and that's what I'm leading to absolutely several years ago you shared a book called memories with me so not really the book there was a piece that you liked from it and I forget how do you remember where you saw it or you don't even remember I want to say I saw it on it was probably like just a Facebook meme where someone had taken it. So it's a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. And I think I saw it and I, it just touched me. Mm-hmm. And I looked it up, ordered the book through Amazon and then shared it with you. And you looked at, and then you ordered the book and we both love the book. Mm-hmm. And there's one piece in there you said it's called souls and you said um mary is this going to be me someday and you know because it's a rhetorical question in a lot of ways because the obvious the answer was yes but but it will be it will be me someday so i i will read it and then um i'll share something that i have gratitude for today and you can share some gratitude gratitude 
for you and we'll close up our podcast. So it's called Souls and it's by, um, it's called, well, the book is called Memories and it's a poem in the book called Souls and the author is Lang Leave, L-E-A-V. So her name is L-A-N-G and then L-E-A-V is um, the book. I can put a link to that in the show notes. And if I don't remember and you're, you're, you're listening and I don't remember to put that link in there, just shoot me an email and say, hey, can you put that link in there? I can go back in and edit it. So it's called Souls. When two souls fall in love, there is nothing else but the yearning to be close to the other. The presence that is felt through a handheld, a voice heard, or a smile seen. Souls do not have calendars or clocks, nor do they understand the notion of time or distance. They only know it feels right to be with one another. This is the reason why you miss someone so much when they are not there, even if they are only in the very next room. Your soul only feels their absence. It doesn't realize the separation is temporary. Can I ask you something, anything? Why is it every time we say goodnight, it feels like goodbye? I'm surprised that I didn't cry because that's so, it's so powerful, that poem for me. Um, my gratitude for today is uh, that I that I made arrangements to have therapy for myself. And my gratitude today is I am grateful for the gift of my painting that reminded me um, that my husband is still is there. And just like the poem said, it doesn't realize the separation is temporary. And that's honestly how I feel. Our separation here on earth is temporary. So I'm grateful for that reminder. That's beautiful. And just remember caregivers and beyond, we see you and we love you. Bye everybody. Bye.